0: God there is none like you we thank you that you are a God who speaks who loves who cares we thank you that you're holy that you're very boundary that you're very good to us and you show us how to live your word is freedom and so Lord as we bust it open today bust open our hearts change us through and through we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Say hi to someone around you that you haven't said hi to and then have a seat. Give the worship team a hand today. When God moves, it's an amazing thing. You know, Jesus' final words in the Sermon on the Mount. Our epic. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now you would think he would flip this around and give the good news last, but he gives the sobering news last and he says this, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the rock, on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The final words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount indicate that he wanted us to have individual lives that were built to last, to sustain us through the storms of life. We're all going to go through challenges. I've been overwhelmed lately with the reality that there's a lot of pain in this world today, and yesterday's victories really don't count too much for today, except that maybe we can learn what we had victory in yesterday that can carry us through today. But if we're thinking about being built to last, we need to think not in terms of the individual, but the collective as well. We are the body of Christ. And I am only, I'm looking at Shane right now, one of our elders, I'm only as strong as Shane is strong and can help me be strong and me help Shane be strong. The interplay and the, re- and the reality that we are a body of believers is something that seems to be lost on us in the West a little bit. We've lost the reality that we are the body of Christ. The church means called out ones. It means that we've been set apart. This is why sometimes, in fact, the blood of Jesus Christ is thicker than the blood of family. It unites us and makes us strong. One of my favorite books that ever came out, it came out in 1994, was by Jim Collins and Jerry Porras. It's called Built to Last. And in it, they spent a considerable number of years looking at 6,000 companies that had enduring qualities to them. And they found out a few things. Let me just fire hose you with a few of these. Some of you might look at these up against the company that you run or those that you work at, but just listen to these. They were about clock building, not time telling. In other words, they went beyond a great leader into building a great institution. They didn't rely on some guy with razzmatazz to get up there and keep them juiced. They found out that there was no tyranny of the or. They embraced the and. It wasn't an either or kind of culture. It was a let's go with the and culture. They found out that it was more than prophets. They found that the companies that had a defined purpose and built a core ideology survived and thrived no matter what the marketplace was doing. They found that they needed to preserve this core and stimulate progress change everything readily except the core beliefs and values. This is very important for the church. Let me just say this right now. I hadn't planned on saying this. This is very important. The church often hangs on to institutional little funky things that we do. We need to hang on to core values and everything else can change. Everything else can change. Hang on to the core. Everything else can change. That's exactly what we find in Scripture. He also found that there's a cult-likeness to the culture, but he doesn't mean that in a weird way, because there was an adherence to culture, and the culture of the church is one to be of discipleship, and they held on to it, and so the church must hold on to it. I love this one. They found in Built to Last, successful habits of visionary companies, try a lot of stuff and keep what works. My Italian friends would say, chuck pasta, baby. See if it sticks to the wall. If you chuck the pasta, it's not sticking to the wall. It's not done. It's not ready to eat yet. But keep chucking pasta. Homegrown management. Hire leaders from within. Don't always look to outsource. Bring people up. One of the things that I love about watching a Jit Christopher preach and others of you just flourishing your gifting is it's homegrown. And that's what makes institutions and especially the church strong. And this last one, oh my goodness, church, listen to me. When I hear this about industries that make it through thick and thin, I think about us. They found, lastly, good enough never is. Strive to do better tomorrow than you did today. You know, one of the great problems in the church is that we often have said, ah, you know, I bust my tail at work, but we're at church, don't you know? Or I do a good job at work because we're pursuing excellence, but we're at church, don't you know? We're at church, don't you know? We got the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Our Savior died for us. Giving him our best is paramount. So I want to talk to you this morning. We're going to look at big chunks of passage of Scripture. Please take notes, mental notes, put them in your computer, whatever you've got to do, but I want you to remember these, and there's going to be an opportunity for a screenshot at the end. Because this passage of scripture that we're going to look at today is loaded and I've, I've titled these four slides and attributes four characteristics of a church that is built to last. The first one is this. Uncommon generosity. If you want to look at a church that is built to last, look and find a church that is uncommonly generous. I want to pick this up in Acts chapter 4 verse 32 through 37. Acts four thirty-two through 37. Follow along. It's going to be up on your screen. I hope you got your Bibles open though as well. Here we go. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uncommon generosity. I want to be this bold. It's a good thing to have people who share the same core beliefs. But it is a God thing. To have people whose core beliefs cause them to share. That's a God thing. Asking people to give up things, oh my goodness. I noticed on Capitol Hill recently there's been a big move, whether you agree with it or not, neither here nor there to try to close some of the loopholes of people that make a lot of ducats hire high-powered attorneys, tax attorneys, who can cause them to avoid taxes to the point where sometimes an administrative assistant at a fortune company is getting taxed at a higher rate of pay than big companies. Now, you can talk about this all day long. But there's been a big move afoot to get people out there. we got to pay more taxes. We've got to pay more taxes. And a presser was called of people saying, we want to tax people more. We want to make sure that they're taxed. Again, I'm not getting into a political argument here, so don't stand up and go preach, pastor. Yes. What I'm saying is, what was funny is there was a man standing there, and he says, well, I've drafted something for each of you at this presser today. I've drafted this form, he says, a commitment that says, because he says IRS is a voluntary thing as well, you can give more than you're even destined to own. So he says, I've drafted something here that will hereby tell everyone, including the IRS, that you're committing to this percentage that you're going to give out of your own income, and you're going to lead the way. And he begins to hand those out to all these people at the lectern. He says, here, just go ahead and sign those at the buck. Well, there wasn't too much excitement now the presser ended quickly why because it's easy to get all fired up about something but it's a really difficult thing to be a person that says have what I have why do we hold our stuff so tightly what causes some people to be generous and others to be stingy now I know this hurts a little bit But we've got to ask this question, why are some people holding stuff loosely and others holding onto it so tightly? And I think the issue is very simple, it's belief. Some believe that God actually has gone to prepare a place for them, that eternal rewards far outstrip the rewards of earth, that you can't take it with you go, but you can send it on ahead. Erwin Lutzer, when I get him on radio, one of the things that I love to do is ask him, Tell us about that law of transmutation. Oh, Carl. He loves to tell about the law of transmutation. And the law of transmutation is an incredible law. It means you can't take it with you when you go, but you can send it on ahead. But the real question is do we believe? Do we really believe that this is real, that we're going to a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem? And I'm going to be this bold right now. I'm going to tell you that one of the greatest challenges is not to rally people to give. It's to rally hearts to genuinely believe. Let me tell you something. I give to what I believe in. I give to what I believe in. We don't need to come up here and twist arms. I've often said this, and I mean it to be true. If God's got your heart, he's got your pocketbook. I was asked to go Thursday night, just a few nights ago, to speak to a group of 200 high-octane leaders from the bridge to church out in the burbs scott ziegler called me up and he said man feels like you got a gift of asking for money (laughs) i said if i do it's never for stuff related to me it's the weirdest thing in the world i can ask for other people like bold as all get out but i even get a little more weak in the knees even when i stand up here to be really honest with you it's just a little bit tougher i don't know what that is but i did a uh, i went upstairs i said i'll do that i'll do my i'll i'll pour out my heart to your leaders but i got i've got some zoom coaching i got to do with T7R and some other things and he said i got an office upstairs we got internet we'll get you all lined up i got done with my zoom meeting i ran downstairs i said where are we at in the program and he said this is what's going on and before i got up a guy named Ralph got up Ralph is one of the most righteous dudes i've ever met And Ralph has not got too many more years with us here. Scott Ziegler was interviewing him and he said, Ralph, tell us what happened when I came here to be the pastor of this church and we needed, we really needed to rally folks to give. He said, Oh, Scott, I got a vision from the Lord that I needed to do this. And you know what it resulted in? You ready for this, guys? Listen to this. Ralph, a business owner, that for many decades in his business didn't have two nickels to rub together. Looked at his wife, Mary, and he said, I've got a number in my heart, but it's gonna require me to not retire. I've gotta stay in work for three years longer than I had planned. Scott said, would you mind sharing that number? And frail Ralph now, who's really close, his days are getting close, he said well Scott I I hesitate to say but for us way back then to commit to $125,000 was a lot of money and I thought I'm here asking Ralph has given a vision for something he believes in and he just began to weep and he said I don't ask you to give I ask you to let God capture your heart then he has it all we're going to be built to last when we can look at one another and go if you need help I got you I'm going to dig deep I'm going to help you out I I know it's different right now we take offerings and all that and we've got some vision coming at you here in a couple of weeks that i think is really going to excite you and make you nervous i want to tell you that right now and i think that's a good thing but i need you to know right now that that the heart and the culture god's put in our dna at 180 i've seen it a love for each other that is contagious and it's awesome and although we're small we're mighty and it's beautiful. And this is what you have to know if you're on the fence. Generous people have exponentially more joy than selfish people. And maybe a question that you're asking yourself today Carl, how do I grow in generosity? And this is where I want to be really clear, and I need you to listen to me, and I, I need you to hear my heart. First, you need to taste the grace of salvation. I'm convinced that we're trying to disciple people that have yet to be transformed by God, and we're asking people to give who haven't been transformed by God, and there's no proper motivation to give. Listen to me. The day is gone. We just lost a giant. I'm going to talk about him here in a moment. Tim Keller from New York. He went on to be with the Lord. But the day is gone when we're going to have kind of a celebrity Christian status. We are so post-Christian, so post-God. Those days are gone, man. You can have as much smoke on the stage and light show as you want. This is a day that we got to make disciples. And I've gotta be honest with you and tell you that for some of you, this is hard for me to say, but it's not, for some of us in this room, we've gone to church a lot of years, but we've never been in Christ. And I say this all the time on radio because here's what I know when Jesus says in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, they are the folks who were churchgoers. They were preaching in Jesus' name, casting out demons in Jesus' name, and doing mighty works in Jesus' name. And he says, I never knew you depart from me. Listen to me. This is hard for me. I feel a spiritual war right now, and we're going to bust through this. I need you to hear me. Ask yourself honestly before the Lord, have I ever truly let you in to control me? Uncommon generosity flows out of a heart that's tasted the grace of God. And second, you must taste the grace of generosity. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Are you kidding me? Let me just say this. I don't have it on an outline. I just got to tell you. I am in the people business. I am telling you right now, the amount of money you have does not dictate the quality of your life. But here's the reality. I have never met generous people who have been touched by the grace of God deeply that had anything but radical joy pouring out of them. And here's what's cool. I leave you on this point with saying this. God, take hold of hearts in this room and online right now. Just take hold of hearts. That's our only hope. And it's beautiful, man. I might get in trouble for saying this on the ride home, but I'm going to do it. I praise God from the bottom of my heart that I got a bride that's always looking for ways to be more generous. It is one of the coolest, sexiest things. I said it. One of the coolest, sexiest things for this old preacher to see is a bride who tells me day after day, what about this? Can we squeeze a little for this? What about that? Now I'm really in trouble, so I need to just shut up. Why? Why? She's tasted the grace of God so deeply that she doesn't want to let anything stick to her fingers. Second characteristic of a church built to last is holy fear. Now this is going to get really dicey. We are in a passage of scripture that you're going to be like, oh man, glad I went to church today. Not if I was just to read it and leave it alone. Look at this, chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. See, he had made a commitment to this whole thing. I want to preface it with this. And brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, by the way, any commentator says the Holy Spirit prompted him to read Ananias's kind of mental mail here. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Notice he didn't lie to Peter. He lied to the Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped them up, carried him out, and buried them. Verse 7. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, let me explain to you what's going on here. This is super important because some of you right now are like, Ooh, this is dicey. It is. Why did God kill them? God asked that question. Why were they taken? Because lying to God is, in fact, a horrible thing, and the early church could not afford it. There's some typology going on here. Because when the nation of Israel went across the Jordan into the land, they were told, do not hold back any of the bounty of the conquest. Achan and his family took some of the goods that they had found and they hid it where? Anyone know? Under a tent. So they hid this silver underneath the tent. The nation of Israel goes out to war. They get their booties kicked. Joshua concludes right away, he concludes right away something very important. We got sin in the camp. Something's going on here. Achan ultimately lost his life, but the nation of Israel regained their strength. Now, me be this practical and then I'm gonna explain some obvious questions that some of you may have the church can afford small offerings but the church cannot afford lying to the Holy Spirit that's the biggest takeaway from this passage right here we can handle small offerings God doesn't need big offerings. But the church cannot handle lying to the Holy Spirit. Now a couple obvious questions are, Carl, why aren't more people dropping dead? (laughs) No, I'm serious about this. Why aren't more people dropping dead? I don't know. I will tell you this. I have personally witnessed at least three times where I saw firsthand a sin unto death. Three men who shook a fist at God. One man walked into a room with a group of spiritual leaders, began to berate them, lied about what was going on in his life. A godly man stood up and said, don't go here, brother. This will not end well for you. Please, just... And this wasn't about money-giving or anything. It was just about just sheer deception. And, and he just insisted, no, nah, man, I'm going my own way. And my dear friend, who was a Godward man, said, please don't do this. He said, I'm out of here. Shut the door. Drove down the road two miles. Got into a soft shoulder going around a corner in Arkansas overcorrected, came across the road, hit a tree, and was gone. You might say, is that a coincidence? I don't believe so. And Scripture says that there are some who harden their heart to the Lord in such a way that they've tasted the grace of God, and he's like, you know what? The jig is up. Now, there have been times When I've seen preachers preach messages and I know what's going on in their life and there's one time I was watching a guy preach and I'm like, dear Lord, he's going to drop dead like right now. And he's still alive. I do not know the mind of the Lord. But I do know that every time we find ourselves in a position when we are lying to the Holy Spirit, we put ourselves in risky territory. At minimum, the joy will be zapped from our life. God doesn't need rich people. God requires holy people. And fear of God makes us holy. I'm not done. I'm going to linger here because this needs some explaining. Because some of you are like, okay, I got a lot of questions. Let me try to clear these up. In 2 Corinthians, there won't be anything on the screen. Just got to hear my heart here for a second. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, this is what Paul says. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Did you hear what Paul said? Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. And I know there's a lot of preachers that have said, well, that's not like fear, that's like reverence. No, I think we've dumbed that down a little bit because sometimes there is a holy fear that is super healthy. And let me try to illustrate it. Holy fear is not merely respect. There is an unsettledness that must accompany friendship with God. Now, there's some people... I don't want to get ahead of my outline, so let me preach my outline here. John Piper said it this way, We can hardly conceive of a God who is both dreadful and yet compassionate, severe and yet gentle, just and yet forgiving, wrathful and yet approachable, exalted and yet available, the one who fears God refuses to forfeit what unsettles him about God because he wants to know, enjoy, and serve the true God. He expects any God worthy of his devotion to unsettle him. Is there something unsettling about a holy God? Yes! yes. There is something super unsettling about a holy God. I won't even leave you there. Fear of God is not at odds with joy. We might think fear of God causes joy to be at risk. No, it doesn't. Fear of God, in fact, creates an orbit of joy. Psalm 34, listen to this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Look at the correlation between abundance and an unsettled fear of a holy God. Piper goes on to say about that verse, The man who fears the Lord does not find him unapproachable or unappealing. The Lord's glory and power and wisdom and justice and mercy are all fearful to him, far above and beyond anyone or anything else in all creation. But they have also become sweet to him. All that makes God fearful now tastes and appears good because the man trusts in him. He knows the fearful God fights for him. The fearful God protects him. The fearful God provides for him. The fearful God forgives him. The fearful God loves him. Faith has made the terrifying fearfulness of God lovely and safe. I can illustrate this from my dad who went on to his reward. This is super important and I need you to hear me. My dad gave me boundaries as a kid. We lived in Alaska and I had boundaries. I had boundaries geographically. I had boundaries relationally. I had boundaries financially. When I started running a paper route, he put boundaries around me. But my dad loved me immensely. So what did those boundaries do for me? Those boundaries protected me from dangers beyond, you with me there? See, this is good parenting right now. Hear me now. Those boundaries protected me from dangers on the other side of those boundaries and gave me great liberty within those boundaries. So as I was in the boundaries that my dad had mapped out for me, there was no more fun-loving kid in the friends that came to my home than us, man. We had liberty galore, and I knew where the boundaries were so let's put the one true and living God up against the tyrannical gods of this world and use that father metaphor a tyrannical God provides no space for freedom a tyrannical God you don't know where you stand with him on any given moment these are many of the world religions today I lived with a bunch of Hindus I watched them terrified trying to please Mariyama and Vishnu and all the other myriads of gods. I watched them terrified. Everything they did was to try to make amends with God, and they lived in fear. They didn't know when he was going to squish them like a bug. It's a horrible way to live. And there's some people today in Christian churches that worship a tyrannical God because they've never met the the unbounded friendship found in Jesus Christ Amen. there are people today and I'm going to be this bold that have been raised in predominantly a Catholic background and you know why they go to that Catholic church over and over again you know why they light candles because God's tyrannical they don't know the friends, friendship of Jesus But in Christ, we have friend. And he loves us. Well, think about that up against a permissive God. A permissive God lets you go do whatever in the, proper use of the word, hell you want. The problem with the permissive God and the gods of this age, the gods that we're worshiping in America today, is that they can't keep you from harm. They can't protect you from outside those boundaries. They have no ability. So a question is, how in the world, Carl? Pastor Carl, how do I grow in the fear of the Lord? And that's a great question study and understand the scriptures even the old testament going whoa god is a holy god God's that stepped outside the boundaries of his parameters and look at ananias and sapphira by the way a lot of people say the god of the old testament is different from the god of new apparently you have read acts 5 lately same god same holy god and he loves you so much he's saying here's the boundaries and inside here jump, play, go nutso, have a ball, stay up late. Man. Holy fear in the body of Christ actually makes us great. One commentator said it this way, you can never understand real grace without an understanding of the holy reverent fear of God. And it's true. Two more quick ones. One is high esteem. We will be characterized by high esteem. Look at verses 12 through 16 of chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, you think? But the people held them in high esteem. Now get this. And many more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. What's going on? I thought nobody was added. I'll explain that in a moment. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. High esteem. I want to focus on those two words. This is what happens in a great awakening. In a great awakening that we're praying for, and I'm praying for this, God, give us a great awakening. I'm going to tell you right now, the church may not grow numerically in a way that, that we might imagine. Because I always used to think, oh, if there's a great awakening, before I became a, even a little bit of a student of great awakenings, I thought half the city has to know Jesus. No, did you know during the great awakening? Of Jonathan Edwards' time, that only 15% of our nation became committed Jesus followers, but the key word is committed. And those 15% radically impacted this United States of America. Every sector of government, every sector of finance was touched by the power of God. Of course, you see and it's and Nias and Sapphira going, You're like, man, I don't know if I want in there. There's a winnowing effect, but man, the growth inside those is so rich. The sifting of the church is not a bad thing. Spectatorship might diminish, but discipleship will increase. Last one I want to give you. Big chunk of scripture, no fear. Well, hold it. I just thought you said we got to have fear. Oh, yeah. Here's what's amazing about holy fear. It brings a fearlessness of mankind. Look at these verses, 17 through 32. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Not run to the hills. Go stand. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison security locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened, I promise you, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple of the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison... They're standing out here in the temple teaching the people. There might have been as many as a couple hundred thousand people around there, guys. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them. But not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in the name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, and by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins and we are witnesses to these things and so is the holy spirit whom god has given to those who obey him boom no fear people have asked me how i'm doing with the loss of my dad and i need to confess something to you i've cried really hard a couple of times But I was starting to feel a little bit weird about something. I'm not that sad. I'm not. I'm telling, I'm confessing something to you here. I almost thought it one day, I was sitting with a group of people and I thought, should I be getting misty-eyed right now? Is this kind of weird for me to not be misty-eyed about this man who I revere and love and respect, and who was a man's man? He was a spiritual stud muffin, the original. Should, should I be misty eyed? You know what I'm feeling, guys? Shouldn't I be crying? A little? No. Why? Because I honestly, guys, have no fear in death. I don't want to die, but I'm not afraid to go. I'm not. I want to stick around. I'm not looking to, you know, get hit by a bus today, okay? But I'm not afraid. I believe that God will give me grace in a moment, no matter what it is. Because he went to prepare a place for us, and he will come again. My dad knew that. Tim Keller this great man of God went ahead of us to the presence of God this week and Keller and his wife Kathy they had launched this Redeemer Presbyterian Church back in 1989 they began to love the city of New York in extraordinary ways was he bold with the gospel bold he defended the gospel in big ways biblical definition of marriage he engaged critics he went on social media he was incredibly gracious he didn't run for the hills and he wasn't an angry evangelical Tim Keller lived it, man. He was quoted as saying when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, the way you look at God and the way you look at your spouse, the way you look at everything just changes when you actually realize time is limited and I'm mortal. And although battling cancer, Keller was bold with the gospel on social media in the final weeks before his death. This is one tweet. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said at all? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. (laughs) I believe... You want to come over, overcome your fear of death? Start believing in your belly that we have a risen Savior. And if you don't believe it, study the scriptures and ask God to renew that joy in your heart. You know what Tim Keller's last words were? Last words, I got them right here. He looked at his bride, Kathy, and he said, there is no downside for me leaving not in the slightest. And with a smile on his face, she kissed his forehead, and he went on to his reward. If you look at acts 5 33 through 42 just a little chunk here when they heard this they were enraged and wanted to kill them but a pharisee in the council named gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while and then he began to talk to him he says men of israel take care about what you're up to do about to do to these men For before these days, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody. (laughs) He claimed to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. Different Judas, by the way. And drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them roughed them up a little and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus here's my bottom line for this morning the church built to last is utterly unstoppable. Can't stop it, man. Can't stop it. We win.